You're listening to the Poetry of Impact podcast, illuminating the unheard stories of today's top leaders in impact with your host, Gino Borges. Welcome back to the Poetry of Impact. Today's episode comes to us as a combination of faded and chosen moments. And it's my pleasure to share this conversation featuring Euler Broplay. I met Euler through Tonic, a global community of impact investors. Euler is the founder of Vested World, an early stage investment fund focused on sub-Saharan Africa. Euler's story is unlike any others that we've had on the show before. Euler himself admits his life was full of many pivotal moments. In this episode, he narrows in on his immigration to the U.S. from Liberia during the Liberian Civil War in the early 1990s. Euler's life could have been drastically different were it not for an intuitive decision by his mother that spared him from a life as a child soldier. Euler translates this experience and his life circumstances for us, revealing the tightly woven thread of the love of his homeland and his desire to help others live well and thrive. So drop in and stay present with Euler as he shares his exceptional journey on the Poetry of Impact. Welcome, Euler. Thank you. Well, it's so good to have you here. Um, I know the Tonic community is uh, very inspired to have your participation in uh, the membership and and I know it's in part because you have an incredibly unique story uh, in terms of your journey um, here to uh, the United States. Can you walk us through sort of the origin um, and give us a sense of where you came from and then where and where you're currently at, um, not just today, but, you know, or just have been, um, you know, over the past couple of years? Yeah, no. So I was born in Liberia and um, lived in the country until 1991. So I was nine uh, when we left and, um, you know, always had relatives that would move to the U.S. or have spent time in the U.S. and, and come back. And was just always this kind of mystical land far away. I, I remember one of the things, and, and that this memory still sticks to me today. You know, when you see these little white fluffy things floating in the air um, that come off plants, like we would see those, and we we were like as kids, we would grab them, and you're we supposed to make a wish and then blow it away in the hope that it would it would make it across the Atlantic, get to the U.S., and someone would hear what your wish was and it would come to come true. Um, but um, Liberia, as, as many people know, is not a, a country that has a lot in terms of wealth and, um, you know, development. And but in 1989, the civil war started in the country, which um, slowly just engulfed the whole, whole nation and, and and turn things from you know what I had you know seen as a, a fairly normal life to a fairly chaotic life, um, and one where you know hundreds of thousands of people died, and as many if not more were displaced, uh, and including us, we you know several times had to leave leave where we were living behind and move somewhere else as the war advanced and rival troops and. Uh, took over different areas and pushed civilians back. Um, I, I shared in my fire story with the Tonic community 
you know, just barely escaped <clears throat> being enlisted as a child soldier um, during that war. Uh, you know, many days we didn't know where our meal was going to come from and, and, and how we were going to eat and what we were going to do. And so I think that experience just <clears throat> was probably the most transformational thing for me and um, just, just taught me so much about uh, human human nature and one resiliency, <laughs> but also how cruel we can be. Um, and just that uh, always being grateful for what you have, for who you have, and uh, making the most of, of what you have around you. Um, and I think that's really influenced me to this day and, and, and kind of guides how I, I think about it and how I try to lead my life. Um, day to day so but yeah so we were fortunate enough to be able to, to leave the country um after a couple of years during the civil war um and move to the u.s um through um, sierra leone then senegal and ultimately um to maryland um and i mean i remember right after arriving i was extremely grateful to be out of that environment but just felt a bit um, guilty is not the right word, but a, a sense of responsibility uh, to help those who didn't have the same opportunity that I had. I, I, you know, cherished everything about the experience and opportunity I was getting to live in the U.S. But I just kept questioning, like, I, I would want my country to be the same. Uh, I would want people there to have the same opportunities and access to the same resources. And I don't, See any reason why they shouldn't? I think we should we should work to try to make sure others can can live this way and, and have these things as well. Uh, so from a very young age, I I you know committed myself to that's what I wanted to do. Um, I remember you know in the we've been here for several several years and my parents all became citizens and they're like you should become a citizen too and I'm like, <laughs> I'm like no I don't want to be a citizen I I, mm. I just felt like I'm a Liberian, that's my identity. And yes, I, I live in this country, but ultimately I want to go back and 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 live in and work in my country and do something in my in, in my country. And that always was a guiding a guiding principle for me. And then reality <laughs> on that on that exact on that point, reality kind of led into a brick wall. I was trying to travel um after I went to law school and and I I remember we're going to my now wife and I were traveling. We we're going to go to Thailand, Malaysia, and Singapore. And we got to the airport in Japan. And I had been told I could get a visa on arrival with my Liberian passport when we got to Thailand. And we got to Japan. I somehow lost my boarding pass and I had to go get another one. They asked to see my passport. And <laughs> they're like, you can't go to Thailand. They won't let you in. Uh, you have to, we're going to send you back to the U.S. I'm like, I'm not going back to the U.S. So we're going to have to figure something else out. And just the challenges of trying to travel around the world with a Liberian passport and the limitations that impose on, on you, your ability to travel, just, I was like, okay, I'm going to, but I need to rethink uh, <laughs> this, we'll be having a Liberian passport. But um, mm -hmm. that was probably the only time I, I really, I was like, okay, I can, I can still, 
do something in Liberia without necessarily being a Liberian citizen. And at that point, I also decided I didn't want to be involved in politics in any any way. And that was really the main reason I continued to hold a, like only a Liberian passport and, and, and um, thought that would be the most impactful way to, to contribute towards development there and really started to look at other ways that people were having an impact in areas around the world and um, really saw the role that economic opportunity uh, can play in changing people's lives. Um, I had always thought that when you you think about how things develop, when you look at political, social, economic, I thought it was always political first. You know, you, you read, you know, the old... Uh, political philosophers like John Locke about man being in a state of nature and then entering into a pact to agree on what the rules were and abiding by those rules. So I thought political development was first and then the social elements and then finally the economy. And and I think traveling around, um, reading um, and, and just observing things made me realize it was actually the exact opposite. People need to be able to take care of themselves provide for their families, um, take care of basic needs. And only when those basic needs are being infringed upon, then they're like, okay, hold up. <laughs> I need to think about how do I protect my, my interests and the interests of those that I care about. So I'm going to, you know, form a pact with the people that are around me. Uh, and initially it's an informal pact and then ultimately becomes a, a much more formalized system that we now think of as, as government and formal society. And so I, I just started looking around and, and seeing how, how countries develop, how people evolve, um, and comparing that with what I had seen growing up in Liberia and continue to see uh, from afar uh, afterwards. So that's kind of, I mean, probably a long-winded story about how I got to, to where I am now, but that, um, that really was that, 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 that path for me. It was a desire to do something in my home country and 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 Africa more broadly, um, getting a better understanding of of how countries and people have developed over time, looking at how it was working elsewhere, and then trying to see how can I apply what I've learned and what I've observed um, to, to the place I care about. So I want to get into... Uh... You, you know, your fund in terms of your vested world in a bit. But um, obviously, when somebody hears that um, you just escaped from being a child soldier, I mean, the first thing that comes to my mind is like, what does just escape look like? Um, I obviously haven't been in anything um, even close to even resembling or, in, or it's very difficult for me to envision it besides what I read or hear on TV. But um, I've never met somebody that's actually has a story that involves a close escaping um, in terms of child soldier. And obviously life would have went a much different way. Um, and it sort of raises the question, uh, one, is that what did that look like? And then two, just more on the eternal question of fate, uh, to some extent, do you ever sort of circle back on those moments and realize like, geez, it could have been much different for me? Um, if my fate would have directed me in a different manner um, or somehow something didn't fall the way, um, you know, it fell. 
Yeah, no, um, and that fake question is really important. So maybe I'll, I'll, we'll, we'll talk about it last, but what did, what did it look like escaping being a child soldier? So every time um, kind of the front, the rebels would dance or the government soldiers would dance, they would tell you, the civilians, someone would come before and say, there's going to be fighting in this area. You guys should think about leaving. Um, and people would just gather in mass, take whatever they could carry and try to move, move back further from the front lines. And so this was the second time this had happened to us. And just so happened, we knew a few days in advance that the rebels were, were coming. We're going to take over this area. Um, and we needed to, to make a move to go somewhere else. And so um, the day before this incident where we ran into to some rebels that tried to, to, to take me, uh, happened my mom had gone to try to find where other members of our extended family were uh, so that when we, we did have to move, we could just go and be with those, those other family members. And she found the our family members and something told her that instead of waiting to come back the next day, that she should turn around and come back that same day. Um, and so she was able to get back to where I was. And sure enough, that very next day, she wouldn't have been able to get to me and we would have been separated. Um, and so many people were separated from their parents and a lot were never able to find, find their parents again. So the fact that she was able to get back to me that day was, me fate or whatever you want to divine intervention certainly um, was a big turning point so as we were moving back we you encounter all these checkpoints along the way where you know they're simply set up to to make sure in part that you know someone the enemy isn't isn't crossing into their territory and monitoring who's coming and going and there are probably about 10 or so soldiers at this checkpoint and we we get there and they start joking around and be like, look at this one he'd be a he'd be a good one to bring on board uh and there were like probably one or two child soldiers with them and i just remember remember my mom like begging and crying and, and asking them please she's my only son please don't take him uh i promise i'll do anything just don't don't take my son and begging and crying with these and trying to reason with these with these guys who were probably you know, not much, not much older than than me. Uh, you know, and maybe late late teens and early twenties. Um, and one of those guys finally came along and just said, "Look, leave the woman alone. Let her let her take her son. We don't we don't need him." Um, and you know, just that one person. I don't know what pull he had uh, among this group, um, but him coming there and standing up and saying, let the woman go, let her take her son, uh, was the difference in me, you know, being taken by these guys and, you know, who knows what would have happened and, and me being here today, um, having this conversation with you. Um, and so someone asked me, we were, you know, I was at dinner with, with a friend and they're like, what's, what has been the most pivotal moment in your life? And I'm like, I, I feel like there's just so many moments along the way. I, mean, I could easily have said that was the most pivotal, but there, I think there has been so many moments throughout my life where, you know, a simple decision, whether I made that decision proactively or 
it just happened and I really didn't have much of a, a role in, in it. Um, has me where I am today and has each of us where we are today. And, you know, in, you know, some of those instances aren't always positive. You know, you, you may face sorrow and setback, um, but you learn or you grow from both the negative and the positive. Uh, and so the, the role that fate plays, I think we can talk about it in the abstract because um, it's, it's not something you necessarily can plan for. But it's just such a big component to who we are and and where we end up, <laughs> where we do. Uh, so yeah, it's, it's it's it can it changes our lives, but in in ways that we can and can't control. So as a um, you know a relatively new parent um, with a three year old daughter, now you probably have a sense of what was going through your mom at an embodied sense um during those moments i mean you probably always probably knew to some extent but now as a parent do you even realize probably even more um you know sort of uh, the role you, you, i mean it sounds like your mom played a real pivotal role in your life uh, for sure um and i'm just curious on on um how that has sort of shaped you as a parent now as a result of watching, you know, generation before you sort of protecting you. And like, how is that sort of that, that legacy inheritance essentially, or that embodied inheritance sort of both maybe played out, played out good. Um, but also maybe there's a certain limitation to that now when like you're in a civilized context, right? I mean, where you, yeah. I mean, there's a certain amount of trauma that comes with that that just gets carried in our genes. Um, and just sort of curious on like how you sort of reflectively look at it now as a parent and then not only upon yourself and toward your mother, if I mean, your mother's still with you or is in spirit, but also with, I mean, your young daughter. Yeah. You know, that's a, that's a tough one. Cause I, I think there are probably things that I do consciously and things that I, I do subconsciously that are a result of just, my learn and lived experience. Mm-hmm. Um, I would say I am probably less, I probably spoil our daughter less um, because I, I've lived through, you know, situations and, and times where just, I had a, a lot, there was just scarcity and uh, you didn't have some of the conveniences and, and luxuries that we enjoy today. And the fact that like something as small as her not wanting to eat something, I'm, I'm probably not as tolerant of. Um, and I'm like, look, if you, whatever you have in front of you, that's what you're going to eat. And you're, I'm not going to give you the, the option um, of, of having something else. <laughs> but on the same hand, you want to protect your kids and provide them with, with the best that you can. Mm-hmm. Um, and whether that is school, whether that's you know where you live, whether that's um, the activities and, and things that they're involved with and making sure that they're not in, in harm's way. Um, so many of our decisions, uh, they are, are, are based around that, making sure we're, we're doing things that are, that are gonna position her well, uh, give her the right education, give her Come the things that are going to make her comfortable. So it's, just, it's there's always this like push and pull. Mm-hmm. Um, but I think I 
the things that are really important to me are her ability to be resilient through through anything. And I mean, you've got a three year old too. It's hard to teach resilience at a at that age. Um, but like, what what can you do to, to to instill some of that in in your kid? Um, what can you do to ensure that they are appreciative of what they have, uh, even though they're probably too young to understand what they have? Um, how can you expose them to things that give them a, a much more a much broader view of the world? Again, take it into the, the consideration that they may not fully understand that yet. And I mean, our daughter is, is at a school where she's learning two languages. And I think that's just incredibly important. Um, she's going to learn the languages, but hopefully along the way, she's also learning about those cultures and learning about the differences and similarities. Um, and it helps inform how she views those, those cultures. And as she gets older, and it's a much more worldly and empathetic view than mm-hmm. want someone who doesn't necessarily have exposure to that uh, from an early age. Mm-hmm. Um, so yeah, those are just, I mean, there are so many things that <laughs> you can and can't do as a parent. And, and the key is like just being okay with what you can and what you can't control. Yeah. Yeah. Yeah, I hear you. I, I resonate with a lot of that as well um, in terms of the ability to realize how much I, I never realized how much was out of my control until I had a child. <laughs> <laughs> um, and so, um, you know, all, all of what I thought was going to be a parental ideology that, uh, you know, that was all all well thought out, just all sort of gets um trialed and aired in real time. And, um, you know, I mean, it's kind of beautiful, um, to, to confront that and still realize how much love you have for, um, a little person. And even though it's just like the whole house sometimes feels like it's a constant tornado and it's like, what, what is, what are we doing here? You know? So, so now, um, you came here to Maryland. Um, you went to law school, um, but um, you're currently in the impact investing space, and you're currently, I understand, running a, a fund. So I'm curious about where the transition came um, for you to move from law um, as a vocation, or at least at one time was thought to be your vocation, to entrepreneurship, um, to allocating money? I mean, where did the vacuum or the moment occur where, where you realized that this is the way for me to address and turn up that, that geopolitical understanding that everybody thinks it starts politics, social, and economics, but you know, instead economics, social, and politics, when law, a law essentially is sort of a more of the political sphere, right? I mean, to some extent, a lot of people in politics go into law. Uh, so I'm curious where, where the vacuum, the moment or the context, um, occur for you, where, where this, um, this vocation sort of emerged for you to move more into the allocation of capital and working with entrepreneurs. Yeah. So it started, um, 
after my freshman year in college, I, I, I mean, I, I always knew I wanted to go into law, go to law school because, like you said earlier, I, I thought I wanted to go into politics because I thought politics was the way that you, you could have the greatest impact on the most amount of people. Um, but after my freshman year in college, I had an opportunity to work. I, I had an internship in the commerce department um, in the office, through the office of the secretary, which I was a guy named Don Evans. Um, and I just saw how, how the relative lack of like firm policy decision and more like the personal connections and, um, that had influence over what, what the department of commerce was doing. And I think I had always assumed people were trying to take facts and and implement policies and and things that would yeah. would benefit the most people but that really wasn't the reality there was so much the the influence of factions in that process was just so apparent that it 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 kind of started to turn me off um from politics and then a few years later after i i think it was after my junior year i i spent time working on a campaign for a guy who was running for lieutenant governor um, uh, with with um, um, former Governor Cuomo, Andrew Cuomo, and again there I saw like what would be said by both Charlie King and Andrew Cuomo to constituents, and I saw what they were saying in rooms with large donors, and it was like. Not the same, <laughs> the same mm-hmm. least. Um, and it made me realize that so much of the decisions that are made by our political leaders is based on self-interest and based on what their biggest donors want them to do rather than what's in the best interest of the people who are electing them. And so I just, and I also realized that no matter what you do as a politician, close to 50% of people are going to disagree with you. And I, I think I'm just someone who <laughs> I like consensus. I want, to, I want to bring as many people under the tent as possible. And the idea that that many people would disagree with something I was trying to do just didn't sit that well with me. And so even before entering law school, I knew I didn't want to go into politics anymore. I also knew I didn't want to practice law. <laughs> but I was there and... Uh, I was going to go through with it, and I figure there are a lot of lawyers doing other interesting things, and I'll figure out what that path is uh, once I'm done. Um, and so, while I was in law school, really started looking at what else was going on from a development standpoint, and started to just whittle down what it was I didn't want to do and what I thought could be interesting. I knew I didn't want to be working for a multilateral organization, non-governmental organization, non-profit organization. I knew I didn't want to do that. Uh, they kind of drill it into your brain at the University of Chicago <laughs> around like free market and, and capital capitalism and the role that it plays in society. And I, as much as I tried not to drink the Kool-Aid, I, I drank the Kool-Aid. <laughs> um, and, and so after I started practicing, I started looking at what else was going on from a 
you know, who, who's trying to really drive true economic change in these countries. Um, and there are a number of funds that were investing. And like this, this seems like it's, it's interesting and could have the, the impact that I think is needed uh, to create jobs, to pay people well in these, in these countries. Um, and I started talking to a number of those folks and, you know, even did work as a lawyer for some of them. And I remember asking, I was like, you know, with some of the folks I, I met, I'm like, I'm really interested in, in doing this as a profession. How can I get into it? And they're like, yeah, tough luck. You're not, no one wants to hire a lawyer uh, to do this. And at the time, most firms are only hiring finance, uh, people with finance professionals and finance backgrounds. And so we, we moved to, we had the opportunity, my wife and I had the opportunity to live in Hong Kong. Um, and there I really saw the role that, you know, both mostly private equity and venture capital were playing in helping transform countries throughout the region, not just, you know, everyone knows about what was going on in China, but countries like Thailand and Indonesia, the Philippines, Vietnam, um, the role that private investment was playing in really helping move these economies forward. And I was like, this, this is what I need to be doing. Um, and so when we came back to the U.S., after everyone was like, we're not going to hire you to, to invest in these, these countries, I just started investing personally and convinced my wife to take some of our savings that we set aside and, and, and start investing. Um, and was doing it with a few friends and we done a couple of deals and just kept seeing really exciting businesses um, that you know, not only have the potential to be successful, but would have a profound impact in each of the countries where they were operating. And so I was like, look, I gotta, I have to do this. It's just, there's this huge opportunity here. Mm -hmm. um, no one is gonna hire me to do it. Those that are doing it are, you know, very small. Um, and I, I mean, I think, I think I can do this. And so that's, that was, and, and I remember the conversation with my wife, it was like early, I had, I had started an entity and I, I was debating whether to tell the, the guy that I did a lot of work for at the law firm. And I remember having the conversation with my wife, I was like, I have to, I have to tell, tell, you know, Michael, I'm doing this. He's going to find out from someone else that I, I've been doing all this on the side and that's not going to sit well with him. She's like, don't don't say anything. Let's just think about this a little bit more. And I went to work the next day, and I just I just kept thinking about that conversation and thinking about it. I'm like, you know, I gotta. I, I went to Michael's office, like, hey, Michael, I'm doing this. You know, I, I'll keep doing my work, but I just want you to know so you don't find out from someone else. <laughs> and and he's like, what's that mean? I'm like, I don't know. I don't know where this is gonna go, but I'm just trying it out and 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 doing it on the side. I'm still gonna do my work. I'm not gonna shirk my responsibilities and he's like why don't you take the next three months off which was effectively till the end of the year he's like well we'll pay you uh but just figure out if this is what you want to do and um if it is and good luck and if it's not you can you can come back <laughs> so i'm like that's it and i'm like have a look i've got this opportunity if it doesn't work out it's not like i'm unemployable i can find <laughs> something else to do so that's that's how i kind of came down this path and is that um right now you bundled up 
that experience, uh, that network, and the people that you're working with now, it's all folded into a vested world? Is, is that sort of a fair, yeah. fair summary? Yeah. Um, okay. And so, so initially it was just, you know, it started off with individual investments and then, mm-hmm. you know, put some of that money I made from the individual investments into something where we started doing deals on a deal by deal basis, you know, with, you know, my capital and capital that others were investing. Um, and then that evolved into, you know, one of the investors we were talking to was like, look, look, I don't want to do things on a deal by deal basis. I'd rather, you know, just put capital into something and um, have exposure across everything. So that that's what led to our first closed end fund. Uh, but yeah, that's kind of how it all started. What does the fund look like today? Uh, how many people involved, um, the types of investments you're making? And I mean, what role are you playing on a day-to-day basis? Yeah, so today we have five people. We're about to add two more uh, to our team. So we'll be a total of seven. Our initial fund was just under $11 million. And we're about to make the last investment in that fund. We're only investing in a few countries in Sub-Saharan Africa, the primary ones are Ghana, Nigeria, and Kenya. Um, we focus on ag, consumer products and services, and technology. Um, and, you know, day-to-day, it kind of varies a lot. It's, um, you know, obviously, we're all looking for opportunities and evaluating those businesses, um, you know, conducting their, their traditional, but pretty thorough due diligence on who they are, what they're doing, why this, this could work. Um, ultimately, if we decide to invest in a company, executing those deals, and that's you know, one area where I'm, I'm still using the skills I learned as a lawyer. Um, and then how do we add value to those companies post-investment by working with the teams and helping them on a variety of areas? Um, I, I spend a lot of time trying to build relationships with other investors and in the ecosystem. I think one of the things that's you know really cool about the venture space in the early stage space is very rarely is one person gonna be the only investor in a business. It's gonna be a range of people. And so you need to work closely with those other investors to the extent you can help help bring them on board and share what you're learning. Um, and so it's, it's really collaborative in this space. Um, you know, most people are willing to, to share their learnings with others and bring them on board. And so you need to build relationships with other, others that's based on trust so they can trust what you're telling them. You're not just trying to sell them, sell them something. Um, and likewise, you can trust them uh, when they're sharing opportunities with you and, and sharing what their insights are. Um, I spent a lot of time talking to um, not, not only our investors, but people who are interested in investing with us about what we're doing, why we're doing it, um, what, what are the opportunities, what are the failures. In fact, you know, in normal circumstances, we take a group of, of folks with us to a few of the countries we invest in to meet entrepreneurs government officials, business leaders in these countries, just so they can get a firsthand understanding of what's, what's happening in these markets. We can easily, we can tell them stuff. I mean, yeah, we, we know what's going on, but it's, I think it's just so much more 
meaningful and resonates so much more if people see it for themselves. Um, so we try to we try to do that and give people that experience. Um, so yeah, I would say those are really the, the key things I'm doing on a on a day to day basis um, with Best of World. Yeah. Well, before we uh, sign off, I do want to. Um, you have so much life experience, um, and um, you obviously now are starting to have um, a good amount of fund experience and in in the impact space. I want to, I'm curious on what advice or what insights you feel um, would have benefited you that you would share to some, you know, younger person who's looking to get into the space. I mean, um, what, what would you share with this person who says, you know, I'm interested in getting into the space and I mean, how should I move forward or approach it? Yeah. I think one of the things I, I, I tell people is um, there are limited career opportunities in this impact investing space uh, simply because at least in the venture space in Africa simply because there's not a lot of capital that people are managing and and so as a result they have to manage their overhead and you know can't afford to have large teams working for them and when I talk to you know younger people students who are interested in getting involved in the space I'm like the best thing you can do one is as you network with people, just try to find ways to add value to the insights that you have. Even if you don't think it's particularly insightful, sharing articles and resources that they may not have come across, but may be relevant to what they're doing is one way to show people not only that you have an interest um, in this space, but you're also thoughtful about how you're going about it. Uh, and you're, you think about what may, may be relevant to someone else. Um, I think if I could go back and do this all over again, I would probably take just a slightly different path. I would go to one of these, these countries that we're investing in and find a role, an operational role with a business uh, and really learn that business, learn what they're going through, learn about more how to build a company from within that business um, before I try to go directly to investing. I think it's much easier for you to work with this, these companies and, and just understand the problems they're trying to solve uh, and learn how to really deal with a lot of different issues that you know, we're thinking about as investors, but we don't have direct experience handling. So I think if you can do that and leverage it to an investing role, I think you, you serve yourself well. And um, increasingly, I think more and more people that are you know, focus on impact investing will want someone with that sort of experience on their team. Um, yeah, so I, I would say those are the two main things I would I would I would tell someone who's who's trying to enter into the space. Yeah, it totally makes sense. And where could people find um, find out more about you and learn more about um, either you personally or uh, your fund in general? Yeah, so I my my email address is this Euler at investedworld.com. I'm not very um, <laughs> I don't have a huge public profile. I have a LinkedIn page. I don't have a Facebook or Twitter account. Although I people are like you should have a Twitter account and and, and share thoughts and stuff. And I know that's just not 
I'm, I'm not, not, not my style, I guess. Mm-hmm. Um, but and our website is is bestedworld.com. But happy to to have conversations with people, happy to be a resource and be helpful however I can. Um, you know, I think the more people that are in this ecosystem who are genuinely interested in, you know, seeing things done well and uh, just driving things forward uh, is, is better. And um, however I can be helpful uh, in getting more people into it, I'm happy to, to do it. Euler, thanks so much. Um, super inspiring story. And, and I know the story is going to resonate with a lot of people, both young and old, uh, both impact veterans and also uh, impact newbies. So thank you so much for sharing your story and your work with us today. And, you know, thank you for, for what you're doing and, you know, allowing people to tell their stories and, and uh, giving others a, a chance to, to hear it and hopefully find, you know, some some little pearls of wisdom, if there are any in there, and uh, be inspired overall by what others are doing. So thank you for, for what you're doing. Thanks, Euler. Hey, everyone. Thanks again for listening in to today's conversation on the poetry of impact. The podcast exists for and because of listeners like you. Be sure to subscribe to the Poetry of Impact podcast on your favorite podcast player. And if you have time, leave us a review. Thanks again and goodbye for now. Till next time. Thank you for listening to the Poetry of Impact podcast. For show notes and additional resources, visit poetryofimpact.com.